You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Episode 190, Tron. Greetings and salutations, listeners, and welcome to another episode of You Don't Know Flat. Today is September 24th, 2020, and I am your host, Rob Flack O'Hara. On today's episode of You Don't Know Flack, we will be talking about Tron. Now, unfortunately, I wrote this week's notes on a uh, copy of Notepad and handed it to a guy in a glowing blue uniform who just jumped inside my Commodore 64 and ran away with him. So uh, as I try to retrieve those, that'll give us a few minutes to chat on this week's Loading Time. Loading Time. Loading time. Loading time. Welcome back to another episode of You Don't Know Flat. Uh, the previous episode, joysticks, seemed to be pretty popular. I didn't know how that would go over. I never know how any of these will go over. I think I've said this many times before. Half the time, the podcast is just for me. <laughs> just about whatever I'm interested at. Uh, at the moment. And, um, you know, I saw a lot of people, I thought this was really funny. I saw some people sent feedback and, and responded on Twitter and said, this is the joystick I love the most. And other people responded and said, that's the joystick I hate the most. And it seems like joysticks throughout time, I guess, was, um, uh, it's like a lot of things that are, um, it's more than nostalgia. It's what you grew up with. You know, I mean, I grew up, uh, for many years playing games on an Atari 2600 joystick. And I love the Atari 2600 joystick. There are a lot of people today that uh, it's not comfortable. They don't like it. There's a lot of people today that are playing retro games and love it. I saw uh, some comments about the Boss joystick. You know, it's uh, the Boss joystick's not one of my favorites. And I saw people who responded and said that was their favorite joystick of all time. I saw people who responded and say they can't stand that joystick. So a lot of personal preference, probably uh, the joystick that you grew up with. And of course, back then, I don't know how I ended up with so many joysticks. Like I had dozens of uh, different joysticks, you know, and it's not like I bought them and, and I don't, I don't even know where they came from, but, uh, uh, yeah, it's just one of those, uh, one of those things that, uh, as they came and went, you know, you, you tried different ones out and eventually you found the one that, you know, felt the most responsive or the most comfortable in your hand. And, uh, anyway, I really enjoyed that episode. I enjoyed going through all the different, uh, not just the ones that came with consoles, of course, but all those third party, uh, you know, different joysticks and things like that. So uh, that was a, a fun episode. I have been cleaning my office in preparation for, I'm bringing in some new uh, tables to start setting up my vintage computer collection. I guess you'd call that. And, um, uh, I have some hardware that I don't know what to do with. Um, it's not old enough to be retro, but it's getting to the point where it's not, beefy enough uh, to be useful. I'll give you one specific example. I have a uh, Acer netbook, I believe is what it's called. I looked it up. It appears I bought this in 2009. Now, uh, netbooks were a category, a subcategory of laptops. They were really small 
laptops. And I think that was at a time, I don't think, I know that was at a time when uh, companies were experimenting with different form factors of computers. You know, uh, laptops were, uh, you know, traditionally had 12 inch screens, 13, 15 inch screens. And netbooks had really small, they were, you know, scaled down form factor. I believe my uh, uh, Acer netbook, I think it's an Acer one, Acer Aspire one, has a nine inch screen. It also has a scaled down keyboard, which is very difficult to type proficiently on. I would not want to write a book on that keyboard. Of course, you could always, you know, hook up a uh, a USB keyboard to the thing, but then that kind of defeats the purpose of its uh, small form factor. But its most limiting feature is that uh, it has a 32-bit processor, which I don't know that I knew that at the time, and I don't know that it was a, a huge deal. I mean, in 2009, I probably had XP on it. I don't, I don't remember, but um, I do remember when I upgraded to Windows 7, uh, the uh, Windows 7, the, the version that I had used on uh, my other machines wouldn't work because it was a 64-bit build of uh, Windows 7, and I had to specifically get a 32-bit version. And even some of the Linux distros I've downloaded to throw on it from time to time, uh, you know, you have to make sure that you get a 32-bit build. It won't run a 64-bit OS. So it's one of those things where, it, you know, the machine works, right? I mean, to the point where you, you plug it into the wall and it charges and you unplug it and it runs, but I just don't have a a daily use for it, you know? And, and I, I, I thought of things like, well, I could make it a, a retro uh, DOS machine, right? Like I could, I could have it run DOS and play DOS games, but I got a million computers that I could play DOS and set up DOS box on, or, you know, I have a 486 sitting uh, on the other side of the room. Like I, I have, uh, you know, vintage uh, PCs. So, you know, it doesn't really, I don't know, it's not uh, It's not going to run Windows 10 32-bit, I really don't think. Uh, not that I would even want to on that. And I've installed uh, Ubuntu and, and um, you know, some other different builds, uh, you know, Linux builds, different flavors on there. I had Fedora on there for a while. But uh, it's just so slow. I don't know. I don't know what to do with these things, you know. If you have... Um, an idea what I should, I mean, I, you know, I would, I would donate it to a school. I don't think a school wants it anymore. I don't, you know, um, again, this, uh, was an era where, uh, it didn't seem like, it seemed like, uh, computer manufacturers were going in different ways. And obviously the way that we went, uh, was the tablet, you know, the, uh, iPad caught on and then we had the, uh, Android tablets and, uh, and those sort of things. And that really filled that niche. Like if I want to, you know, sit in my living room and, and read an ebook. I'm not going to do it on this little netbook. I'm going to do it on my, uh, you know, Android tablet. So, uh, I don't know. I don't know what to do with this. And it's, that's not the only thing that I have. That's like that. I have a few different, uh, you know, either computers or laptops or different piece of electronics that they work. It's just, I don't know. It's kind of like their life, not their life expectancy, but just their usefulness is kind of, uh, worn out. So I don't know. I don't know what to do with that stuff. I hate to throw away a laptop uh, or a netbook or whatever that works, but you know, if I'm not using it and we'll never use it, uh, I don't know what to do with it. So, 
anyway, last night I uploaded uh, a new Sprite Castle plays. If you've been listening to Sprite Castle, you know that each week I uh, record a video of me playing the game that week. And then uh, every other week I'm off. I take off Sprite Castle and I do You Don't Know Flack. And so since this episode was about Tron, I uh, went through the Commodore 64 library and found all the Tron light cycle clones that I could find. And there are a lot. I probably played uh, a dozen last night on the feed. So if you want to check that out, uh, my friends uh, over at the Amigos are uh, hosting those videos. So just go to uh, YouTube and look for Amigos Retro Gaming. And uh, underneath there, you'll see a Sprite Castle Plays playlist. You can probably just go to YouTube and search for Sprite Castle Plays, and I would imagine that would come up. But uh, if you want to check that out, I wrecked a awful lot of Tron Cycles while I was testing that out. And fortunately, I have a pretty good pit crew helping me out reassemble those uh, Tron motorcycles. Some of that crew includes David Hearn, John Schaller, Eric Strineasy, Matt Nicholson, Dave Zilly, Steve Rasmussen, Patrick Markey, Garrett Allier, Rick Reynolds, Scott Lambert, Jake Nonamaker, and Cobra Kai. Uh, I also want to uh, give a shout out to the latest two members of the pit crew. The first is Chris Folds, uh, who has been a supporter of the Amigos for a long time, and he has joined us over here on the Tron pit crew. And John Morrison, my old friend who has supported my podcast for as long as I've been doing them. John Morrison is a great guy. And uh, those are the two newest supporters of the uh, members of the Tron pit crew, a.k.a the patreon supporter so if you'd like to support this podcast through patreon it's always appreciated and you can find the link over at patreon.com forward slash rob o'hara if you have any feedback about this or any episode of the show you can email me directly at rob o'hara at rob join the conversation at facebook at facebook.com forward slash robcasts Find me on Twitter at Commodore or leave me a message on my podcast hotline, which is area code 405-486-YDKF. And I have just tracked down that little glowing blue booger that ran off with my notes. That means loading time is over and we could get started with this week's episode, Tron. As I have mentioned many times in the past, my first computer was a TRS-80 Model 3 that my father purchased back in 1980 when I was uh, six, about to turn seven years old. And I remember one time I had some of the neighborhood kids over. They had never seen a home computer. And the TRS-80 was sometimes a bit persnickety. It would lock up on occasion or reset or, or do strange things when it got too hot. And we had been playing a racing game. I remember this was a game that was written using basic characters as the to define the car and the sides of the road. And you uh, moved back and forth and passed other cars using the keyboard. And for whatever reason that day, the TRS-80 locked up. And when it did, the screen just filled itself with garbage. And there were three or four kids over at the time. And they said, oh, what is that? And I don't know why I decided to say this, but... I told them that sometimes the computer would get upset if certain people were in the room and it would talk to me in machine language, in a language that only I could read. <laughs> Again, I was probably seven years old, uh, but there was one kid who had come over that I didn't particularly like. And so 
as the whole screen was filled with flashing characters and reverse ASCII and all kinds of jumbled letters, I ran my finger across the screen like it was Braille and went across every letter like I was reading uh, some archaic language. And I said, it says that it doesn't like this person. <laughs> And it's having a very good day, but he says that it's hot <laughs> and he needs time to rest. <laughs> and so about that time, uh, one of my parents, I think my mom came in the room and one of the kids said, Hey, can he really read that? And my mom goes, no, it's just garbage. The computer locked up and boy, was I in trouble. Uh, not only for lying that, uh, I could read that language, but also that I had just said that it didn't like one of the kids, which was very obviously, uh, me <laughs> didn't like, uh, one of the kids. So, but you know, as a young kid, I think all of us had that imagination, at least I did, that there was something going on inside the computer. When we used the computer, it wasn't just, I didn't imagine inside there were, you know, chips and voltage and whatever. Like, I knew there was something magical. There was something magical that made that box different than our microwave. You know, the microwave didn't play games. It was electronic, but, uh, you know, the computer, there was something more inside there, something magical that made this computer seem to, to come to life, you know? And I didn't really formulate a theory or anything about that until 1982. Now, my parents... Uh, come from the generation where drive-in movies were a big thing. And when I was a kid, we regularly went to, I say regularly, multiple times a year, we went to the drive-in. My dad had a 1975 Blazer, which probably doesn't mean anything to you. But the Chevy Blazer uh, in 1975, that was the last year where the entire top came off the truck. So not just the back, but also the part that goes over the cab in the front where you sit, it was all one big piece. And so inside the back of the blazer was not like a pickup. It was like the inside of a suburban. There was a big bench seat. The whole thing was carpeted. And uh, so we would go to the drive-in and my dad would turn that bench seat around backwards. And uh, he and my mom would sit on the bench seat and watch movies. And my sister and I would lay on the floorboard. We had these big pillows and we would lay there and, and watch movies. And, you know, there's something really special about a drive-in when you're a kid. You know, there's a uh, a thing that, you know, our parents would do like, hey, when it's dark, you know, uh, when you're at home and you'd be out playing with your friends and they would say, you know, when it's dark, when the street lights come on, that's what my mom would say, when the street lights come on, it's time to come home or the porch light, she would turn on the porch light. Uh, and then if you didn't do those two things, then you'd have a mom standing on the front porch yelling your name. Uh, and that was embarrassing, but then you had to go home. But there was something cool about a, a drive-in as a kid because, you know, you have this feeling like this is later than I should be out. And then you could say, hey, I want to, you know, I need to go to the bathroom <laughs> at the uh, little drive-in concession stand, you know, or uh, uh, I want some popcorn. And your parents would give you a couple of bucks and and you would go, you know, and you would walk and you'd, you'd go through all in between all the cars and you'd see other people and stuff. And it was uh, just that cool experience, you know, of like you're out on your own, uh, but you know, you're a kid, but it's late at night. I don't know. It's, it's a unique experience. So I remember 
the movies uh, that we went to go see at the drive-in. I have I have solid memories of each of those things, and I remember in the summer of 1982 we went to a double header at the drive-in. The first movie of the night that we saw was Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan, which came out in June of 1982, and um, uh, I don't I was never uh, as big of a Star Trek fan as I was Star Wars. I was much more into Star Wars and still am. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think my parents had, had grown up watching Star Trek. And so it was, a uh, you know, a movie to, to go see, you know, uh, but the second movie of the night was Tron, which was released in July, uh, of that same year, 1982. Now I'm kind of working on a assumption that you have seen Tron <laughs> and know that the general gist of it, but, uh, uh, generally speaking, it is about uh, some computer programmers that work for a company called Incom, and uh, one of those programmers, uh, Kevin Flynn, has had his games. He wrote several games, and they were stolen. They were uh, stolen by uh, you know the, the corporation, and they they took his games and and uh, took his rightful property, and so he and uh, and uh, a couple other uh, Alan and and uh, uh, and their their uh, a friend that goes with them and they basically uh, go, they're going to hack into the system and try to find evidence that uh, Incom has stolen uh, Flynn's games. But what happens is that, uh, you know, there's also a, uh, a big computer program that's being used by Incom and he is uh, defending itself and they decide I don't know if you want to say they decide, but the computer basically uses this digitizer and zaps uh, Flynn and sends him into the computer. And so when it's, uh, you know, inside the computer, he knows that there's a life outside the computer. But most of the people that he encounters don't realize that they are programs. And so they are put inside this system and they some programs have... uh, uh, functions that they do, but other programs uh, are put into these games, uh, you know, gladiator style games where they uh, play against one another. And so that's where Flynn finds himself in these uh, different games. And eventually he runs into uh, Tron, who Tron is a program, but he knows, he believes that there are users out there. And eventually he realizes that Flynn uh, is a user. And so the two of them work together to um, get this evidence back out uh, to the real world. And when they do, uh, you know, Flynn basically finds the evidence that uh, um, Dillinger stole his, uh, his programs and, uh, and there's a big happy ending. Now I will say, uh, I just recently rewatched Tron earlier this week and uh, for a kid's movie. I mean, if you think about what Tron is, like if you say, oh, the movie Tron, what's the first thing you think of? I think of a guy in a glowing suit and light cycles and all that stuff. But the main characters in Tron, the uh, programmers, don't get zapped into that world until 30 minutes into the movie. And the movie is an hour and a half long. So one third of the movie is spent outside that world, even though we do get a couple of hints. Uh, I believe in the opening scene, we, we see... Uh, uh, you know, a couple of, of uh, little opening clips, but but mostly the first third of the movie takes place in the real world, which, you know, when you go back and watch it, it seems like a long time before, uh, uh, especially if you haven't watched the movie in a while, it seems like a long time before they get to Tron land, you know. Um, now that summer, that was the summer of 1982, I turned 
nine years old. But so uh, at this time, when I would have seen these movies, I was still eight years old. I turned nine uh, later that summer. For me, that was the summer between uh, third and fourth grade. And, uh, you know, I didn't do this. I want to look this up. Uh, top movies of 1982. I should have done this uh uh, before the show. So I'm looking here at uh, 1982 uh, in film. Uh, the top 10 movies. This is what I was looking for. The top 10 grossing movies of 1982. Of course, number one, E.T. Uh, then we have Tootsie, Officer and a Gentleman. Those were not uh, on my radar as a kid. Rocky Three was a big one. Porky's I probably didn't see until I was 20. Uh, and then we have Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. 48 Hours, Poltergeist, that was a big movie for me in 1982. Uh, the Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, which I may have seen at some point, but I couldn't tell you anything about. Uh, and Annie, which was, <laughs> unfortunately, another big movie uh, in my household. My uh, little sister loved Annie, and so uh, uh, I saw Annie many, many times. So I'm looking here, like E.T., it says grossed about $360 million dollars. And the bottom of that Annie is $57 million. Uh, but I wanted to see Tron. Uh, nah, it doesn't really have any uh, the list of how much it grossed. Um, but it was not a box office hit. Uh, there were a lot of things uh, that were planned. Actually, I'm, I'm clicking over here on uh, Wikipedia. In uh, box office, it says it made $50 million, uh, with a budget of $17 million. So, I mean, it definitely, you know, it was in the black, but um, it wasn't the big hit that people were expecting. And definitely not, uh, uh, you know, what Disney and the um, uh, production company was, uh, was expecting. So, I, th I think um, for a lot of people, it was a little bit ahead of its time. I think... Um, you know, now if you said, oh, it's a movie that takes place inside a computer and people run around doing stuff, you know, okay, you get you get the idea. But back then, uh, it was so unique. It was such a unique idea and it had such a unique look that I just don't know that, uh, uh, you know, and again, um, uh, I was just talking about this. Uh, I, you know, I had a number from 1984. In 1984, uh, about 8% of households in the United States had uh, home computers. And so I don't know what that number was in 1982, but it would obviously be significantly less, 5% or less. So, you know, making a whole movie about people getting sucked into a computer and this virtual stuff, I don't know that it, you know, really appealed uh, to, uh, you know, a, a, as big of an audience as they had hoped. But I will tell you this, it appealed to me. <laughs> It appealed to me in a big way. You know, when Tron came out, uh, there weren't any Tron uh, toys in the very beginning. and uh, But I had Legos. I had tons of Legos. And uh, the Recognizer, I don't know if you know what ship that is in Tron. It's the big, um, you know, big giant uh, red thing that, that chases the, the, the light cycles. And that, that uh, uh, Flynn pilots later in the movie where the, where the bit shows up. Uh, I would build those out of Legos. They're pretty, you know, you just use a lot of straight pieces and, and little sloped roof pieces, you know, for the feet. It was uh, pretty easy to build, but I used to build those and, and, um, I try to build like something that looked like light cycles out of Legos, but, uh, uh, it was, um, 
definitely that summer for my friends and I, uh, Tron was a big deal. In fact, uh, that summer, my friends and I made up our own uh, Tron game, which we would play in the front yard with Frisbees. It was kind of like Freeze Tag. If you've ever played Freeze Tag, where you would run around as a kid and you had to to stop, you know, until somebody touched you and then you could unfreeze and you would run around again. Uh, it was like that, except for we were pelting each other with Frisbees, <laughs> which now in retrospect as an adult does not seem like a good idea. Um, but that was uh, what we did. We would set a little boundary in the front yard and everybody would bring their Frisbee. And by the way, uh, there are different qualities of Frisbees. I don't know if you know this, but there are really light, thin Frisbees that are fun. And when you get hit with one, they bounce off. And then there are like the really heavy-duty, thick Frisbees, which uh, one of my friends got hit right in the mouth with one. He had a big, bloody lip. And that was the end of the Front Yard Tron game. Uh, but fortunately for me, uh, we didn't have to make our own Tron games uh, for long because uh, I, I guess uh, obviously there there was a huge tie-in right between uh, uh, electronic games, video games, and uh, Tron, which was a movie about electronic video games, right? Uh, so there were two arcade games. There's the uh, Tron. Just, I would just call it Tron, the arcade game. That was uh, uh, both. These were by Midway. That came out in 1982. And then there was Discs of Tron, which came out in 1983. Uh, the first Tron game, the Tron arcade game, uh, if you've not played it, uh, consists of four mini-games uh, that are all scenes from the movie. Let's see, there are, I'm doing this off of memory, but there's the tank level, there is the light cycle level, there is the level where Tron is trying to get into uh, the master control program to get past him and get into the IO beam, and then there is the level where he fights the grid bugs. Now, the grid bugs, I think, is one of the most interesting parts of that game, simply because if you watch the movie, the grid bugs are in it for about five seconds, and it almost seems like an afterthought, like they're they're going over in the solar sailor and uh, they see these grid bugs and, and uh, either Tron or Flint says, hey, watch out for those grid bugs. And they show this little animation of uh, these grid bugs popping up. And the animation is obviously hand-drawn. It's not CGI uh, like a lot of the other a animation in that movie. And um, it really kind of stands out as not being uh, the same quality. There's actually... Uh, a lot of hand animation happening in uh, the movie Tron that a lot of people don't realize. Um, but yeah, so so you had the Tron arcade game, and then once you beat all four of those mini games, you would go to level two, and then you would go to level three. And each one, uh, each one of those levels, the mini games got uh, progressively harder. Uh, if you could beat all four mini games on the first level in my world, you were considered to be pretty good at Tron. <laughs> like I played a lot of games of Tron where I didn't even beat the first level all four mini games. And then I got to the point where I could beat all the first level, all the second level. And then, you know, usually die somewhere in the third or fourth level. I have, uh, uh a friend of mine, uh, owned a retro arcade locally and I watched him play Tron and he would get to the sixth or seventh level, uh, without even trying. Uh, he, he's really good at Tron. And so, um, uh, that's always disappointing <laughs> to see somebody that's so good, uh, at a game that you struggled so much to play, uh, and, and that you weren't any good at, <laughs> but I do, uh, like, and in Tron, uh, I mean, beside the game itself, the cabinet 
is uh, this combination of glowing blue and black and black lights. And I mean, it's a really, really unique cabinet all the way down to the blue glowing stick. The control panel is very unique. You have a, a joystick with a trigger on it, and then there's a spinner so that uh, on the games like where you're throwing uh, your disc, you can aim the disc in different directions. So you can have Tron, you know, running to the right and shooting to the left, that sort of thing. Uh, or in the tank game, you can be driving the tank around with the joystick and then turn the turret with the uh, spinner. So it's a very difficult game to accurately play at home in MAME unless you have a a uh, very specific controller basically designed to play Tron, I would say. Uh, the next year there was Discs of Tron. And there were two versions of Discs of Tron. There was a normal arcade cabinet, and then there's what's called the environmental cabinet, which is, it's almost like two cabinets stuck together that you walked inside. Um, I guess you could think of it like, uh, you know, any of those sit-down driving games, like Pole Position or whatever, except for you didn't sit down, you stood up, and you played uh, Discs of Tron, and it was basically the game from the movie where two warriors, uh, you know, threw a... Uh, it's almost like a deadly version of Highlight, right? <laughs> Except for I think in Discotron, uh, you, you actually throw your discs at each other. And you run back and forth. And, and uh, again, you use that uh, little spinner to aim where your disc is going to go. And it's uh, – uh, I don't know how great of a game it is. I mean, I think it's an okay game, but I think it's a wonderful experience. I think if you're a kid like I was and played that, they had this at uh, Photon, my local uh, laser tag arena. And – Going to a place to play laser tag and then taking a break and stepping inside an environmental discs of Tron cabinet. I mean, I can't tell you how much I was looking forward to the future. I thought that was going to be the future. I thought when I was 40 that in the Olympics would just be people playing laser tag and playing environmental video games. And uh, didn't happen. In fact, my local uh, laser tag place, uh, Laser Quest, announced uh, this week on Facebook they have gone out of business due to uh, uh, coronavirus, put them out of business. So it, things are going the opposite way. <laughs> we need more laser tag and more Tron in our lives. Um, there were some uh, desktop. There was a little, uh, uh, I guess it's, a, I think it's Tomitronic, a uh, little desktop Tron game. Uh, I've, I've seen it. I have not, uh, I never owned one of those. What I did own was a couple of Tron games for the Atari 2600 um, I believe, I, f I think Tron games got their start on the Intellivision. There was Tron Deadly Disc, which is literally what you think it is. It's uh, Tron running around in an arena with that uh, classic Intellivision Running Man animation and three bad guys. And you use the little uh, Intellivision controller to shoot your... Uh, to throw your disc and, and try to wipe out opponents, you know, and then as you wipe them out, more opponents show up. And, and uh, that was ported over to the Atari 2600. I don't think the Atari version is quite as good, but it's still playable. Uh, then there was uh, Mazatron on the Intellivision and then finally Tron Solar Sailor. Then there for the uh, Atari 2600, there's another game uh, called The Adventures of Tron. Which I guess, you know, I read this online. It started out to be a port of the Intellivision game, Mazatron, but it was so different by the time they got done that they just called it a new game. And then eventually they were going to port this new game back to the Intellivision, but I guess, uh, I guess they never did. Um, I guess they figured three games, three Tron games for the Intellivision was enough. Uh, plus you got to think they were paying, uh, you know, Mattel, 
uh, you know, was paying licensing fees to use the word Tron in all these games. So, uh, I, I mean, I'm sure there was profit to be made, but, but not after a while, you know. Um, it's funny because they had all these Tron games and, and, uh, some were good. I don't know that any of them were great. Uh, the Tron Deadly Discs on the Intellivision would probably be, uh, or, or on the Atari, you know, that would probably be my favorite Tron, um, early Tron console game. But what's funny is, uh, we had Surround on the Atari 2600 and Surround is too, uh, characters that would start, you know, going at each other. I said characters, I mean fat pixels, and they would leave a line behind them and you would go around as long as you can without, uh, hitting a line either that you drew or that uh, the other guy drew. And if you think about it, that is really Tron light cycles. I mean, in its very essence, it is the exact same game. And so we used to play surround and pretend like it was Tron, you know, I mean, it, there was no, it wasn't that difficult to imagine it. It literally was, uh, the same game. And then, of course, you know, you have the uh, Tron um, minigame, you know, in the arcade version of Tron Cycles, and, and it plays exactly like Surround. Uh, now, what was interesting is that, you know, when I looked through, like, the Commodore 64 and, and a lot of PC stuff, I could not find any uh, official Tron games for home computers. But uh, there, there seemed to be two categories of games. The first I would call, like, homebrew Tron games, and if you look through like the Commodore library, um, I mean, there's Tron, there's Tron 2020, Tron Bikes, Tron Construction Kit, Tron Life Cycles, Tron 2, Ultimate Tron, Ultimate Tron 2. There are so many Tron knockoff games that are all different versions of Life Cycles, and some of them are uh, written in basic and look terrible, and some of them are, are very good looking. Uh, and some of them are one player and some are two player and a couple are four player and, uh, ultimate Tron two is six players. Everybody gets uh, two keys on the keyboard and, uh, you know, it's a really fun game if you can get six people around a Commodore keyboard. Um, but, uh, yeah, so there was, there was tons of those, uh, knockoff light cycle games. Uh, well, I don't want to say knockoff. They were Tron light cycle games, but they were homebrews. They were not official releases. And then the other category, um, are games that are basically knockoffs of Tron with different names. There was, uh, and I played these on the, uh, on the Sprite Castle Place feed. If you want to see some of these, Rebel Racers was one, Raster Runner was one, Centric was one. Uh, these are all games on the Commodore that very closely resemble the, uh, you know, the play, same type of play as Tron Light Cycles, but you're not quite on a Tron Light Cycle. On one, it looks like you're on a, uh, Tron steamroller <laughs> on another one. It looks like you're, you're in little, um, almost like, uh, you know, little cars that are at an angle. So, you know, they would change the, uh, the shape of the, of the main ship or whatever, but you know, they're, they're the same game. Uh, there are a ton of other homebrew Tron games and different ones. Uh, there's a Tron light cycles game for DOS that I know I played back in the late eighties. There's a game called, um, uh, CBG Tron, which is uh, early nineties for DOS. There's a, uh, Atron, A-T-T-R-O-N, uh, Atron 5000. That is an Amiga light cycle game. So there's just so many, uh, different Tron games out there, um, that are, that are not Tron games. <laughs> now I will say, you know, speaking of that, and this is a different way of thinking about things, but, uh, in, in the mid eighties, 
I also got Little Computer People. If you've ever played Little Computer People or not played it, it is a – I say play. It's it's hardly a game. It's almost a simulation, but it is a uh, – let's call it a game where when you load it up, it shows a cutaway version of a uh, three-story house. It's a two-story house plus uh, some attic space. And uh, you got a person. And so the idea was not that this was a game. If you read the documentation, it was that this guy has always been living in your computer and that this program just allows you to see him. And so you would load this up and the little guy, my guy's name was Ogden, (laughs) and they were all randomly generated and they all had different colored shirts and and pants and uh, my guy had a bow tie. And and, um, so every person who got a copy of this the first time you loaded it it would generate um use this little algorithm and generate a random combination of colors and and pick a name so in theory everyone would be uh unique but um you know in in the movie tron there's um you have the part where the guys are playing uh you know they're they're battling on on the game grid and that makes sense right i mean you have programs and you know if people are playing video games then you're seeing what's going on, uh, you know, inside inside that game, right? You're just watching them battle. But then when they break out of the video game, the guys from Tron and, and uh, Ram and and uh, and Flynn, you know, they they leave on the light cycles and they go wandering around. They find some water to drink that's uh, um, you know energy or whatever, and they, you know they do different things. And so it's like they have this little free will, and so you get this idea. That there's other things going on. They're not just playing games. They're going back and, and living in these little cubicles. And so they have this life outside of what's going on. And so that's kind of the same idea as uh, little computer people, you know, uh, and little computer people. It's that's a, it's not a, a game. It's that guy. He's inside your computer. And when you're not playing a game or or crunching numbers or whatever you're doing with your computer, that guy's just hanging out. He's in there listening to records and playing solitaire and petting his dog or whatever else is going on in there, you know? Uh, and so I know that that little computer people is not, uh, you know, a Tron game, but it was that same idea. It was that same concept of that the computer, you know, the programs inside your computer, when you weren't using them, were just living a life of their own. And they were just waiting on your beck and call to say, okay, well now I need to run this program. And they would say, all right, well, let me finish up this, uh, you know, I mean, the guy in Little Computer People would exercise and do things. So, you know, I'm sure he's like, let me finish these jumping jacks and I'll get right on loading that game for you. (laughs) So as I was watching Tron this week, I kind of sat down and I was trying to come up with a list, a top five list of the top five things that I loved about Tron. Like, why did I love Tron so much as a kid, you know, and, um. I don't know that uh, – I, I really kind of came up with six, I guess, uh, although two of them are kind of similar. But anyway, let's get into that list of, of things that uh, – reasons why I loved uh, Tron. The first one on my list is that uh, users were essentially worshipped as gods. You know, there are lots of people inside Tron, you know, inside the, the computer that don't – believe in users where obviously users are the people that made them, you know, and it's just kind of a funny, a parallel, you know, with, uh, I, I guess I would say that there's a, a religious tone, 
to Tron, you know, in that uh, in those discussions that they have. But um, but I I just like that that uh, you know from our perspective, um, you know, we're like, well, obviously these are all programs that we wrote, and then the programs that you wrote don't believe that you wrote them. I don't know. It's just kind of a, an interesting concept. I always I always like that that uh, uh, you know that the users would have the ultimate power over theirs, like. Uh, I, you know, I, I always think about like uh, Mount Olympus or something, right? Like Zeus, yeah, make, you know, looking down, I, I think of the scene in Clash of the Titans where they would look down through the clouds and they would see all the people and then having those people say, I don't believe in Zeus when, <laughs> when they're watching, uh, you know, their own creations act things out. So I don't know. That was, that was something I liked about it. Uh, the second thing on my list was all the computer terms. And if you were into computers in the 1980s, then every time, in Tron, one of these terms came up. It was like you were on the inside, you know, like their buddy Ram. And you're like, oh, yeah, it's Ram, you know, and, and then a clue later on. Uh, there's the bit um, that shows up, which if you understand computers, you know, the bit only says yes and no, because a bit in a computer can only be one and zero, right? Yes or no, true or false. Uh, and so, you know, it was like this this layer of writing that was written towards people that uh, were in the know with computers, you know. And I'll tell you something that uh, I have always believed that I've turned out is incorrect. I always thought that the term Tron came from, there is a computer, uh, a troubleshooting uh, technique uh, for tracing, and you could trace uh, a program as it's running through its line, the code, and see where an error is. And so to turn trace on, that command is Tron, T-R for trace, Tron. And when you want to turn it off, it's trough, T-R-O-F-F. So you have Tron and trough. And I always thought that was where the term Tron came for. And this week I was re-watching Tron. I watched it with the commentary track and the uh, director and writer mentioned that uh, there's a whole backstory about how the guys that put together uh, the original pitch for Tron had an animation company and they did Animal Olympics and they did some other projects like that. And they had a project where they were doing a new style of backlighting animation and they built this guy that was uh, electronic. And so they called him Electronic Man and then eventually they shortened that to Tron because it was Electronic. So that is literally where the term Tron came from. I did not know that uh, all this time. I thought it came from the, the computer command, uh, Tron and Trough. But regardless, you know, there's just all these different um, uh, little one-line things that are throwaway, you know, master control program and and um, just all these things, uh, you know, security programs, the tanks are security programs, all these things that are, are related to computer terms. And so um, I really enjoyed that. Uh, number three, uh, we have the uh, the life inside a computer, you know, and again, uh, that goes back to little computer people, what I was talking about, uh, you know, what happens when we turn our computer off or what happens when we close a program? Does it disappear or does somebody inside take that program and put it inside a manila envelope and file it in a desk or, or a filing cabinet waiting for you to look for that file. And then whenever you click on it to go pull it out of that file and, and put it up on the screen, you know, it's just that kind of fun idea that, that there are real little beings inside there that are doing all of our bidding as we uh, click around uh, the next one is is so similar. I really already covered it, but I, uh, I'm going to change this one. Well, I'll just say number four is um, the special effects. 
mean, the special effects were amazing in Tron. There was no movie that looked like it. Um, if, if you watch any of the behind the scenes and how they made it, uh, scenes were shot and, and, uh, you know, they were, they were shot. People were composted together, uh, in the same scene. People were shot in black and white, uh, and then cells were animated by hand. Things were backlit. Uh, the CGI graphics was like nothing anybody had ever seen before. Not in a movie. Uh, nobody had seen anything like the Tron cycles, you know, and yet, when they show the close-up of the Tron cycles and you see the scenes of, of Tron uh, or Flynn racing uh, and you see like the lines going like on the reflection on the glass, that's all hand animated. I mean, so it's just a, a wonderful, wonderful mixture of uh, classic animation, computer animation, new types of, uh, uh, of film techniques. It's just this weird mixture that really started things. And, you know, there was a lot of pushback, uh, you know, infamously Tron was excluded from a special effects, uh, category because, uh, they use computers and that was considered to be cheating. And, um, you know, they, they see a lot of parallels in the movie story about how, uh, uh, you know, the conflict between the programs and the users as being the conflict that they experience between, you know, using computers to do animation and would that replace, uh, you know, hand-drawn animation, which, of course, it has. Uh, I don't know that Tron was necessarily the beginning of that, but uh, it, it replaced it in a different way, you know. Um, it's funny that uh, they talked on the documentary I watched, they talked a lot about how uh, modern animation, you know, is so fluid and that they have, they try to make things so realistic. Whereas in Tron, uh, obviously they didn't have the, the same technology that we have today, but that the animation, um, like they embraced it the other way. They wanted it to look very computer-like. They wanted the light cycles to be made up of spheres and squares and the recognizer to be all sharp angles and the, and the playing field to be an exact grid. They weren't trying to replicate what was in the real world they were trying to create a digital world so it was kind of an interest um, juxtaposition i guess between uh, the two uh so yep i love the special effects i love the everything they created and then the fifth thing uh which again is similar i guess but it's the idea of object permanence you know and object permanence is a thing i studied uh a little bit in college uh it is a uh, developmental Theory, uh, Jean Piaget, I think is, is uh, the person's name, actually came up with this theory and, and put an age to it. Uh, but object permanence is uh, the theory that at a certain point, human beings develop uh, the idea of object permanence. And object permanence means that even though you can no longer see an object, it still exists. And... Uh, Originally, Piaget said that uh, this developed in babies between 18 and 24 months, although now they have said that uh, they believe that that age is much lower, uh, anywhere from four to six months. But, um, you know, so the idea is that, you know, when you take a, uh, let's say you take a ball and show it to a baby and then you put it behind their back, they don't understand that the ball is now hidden behind your back. They think it has disappeared from this universe. <laughs> they have no idea that that thing continues to exist outside of your view. And so that is the theory of object permanence. And so uh, the reason not to get into uh, weird um, psychology uh, studies, but uh, when they did their original study, they would take things and put them like under a blanket and then the babies wouldn't look for them. And so they said, Oh, they haven't, they don't understand that, uh, you know, these objects still exist. Uh, 
Um, but now they think that some of those was some of those uh, responses were hindered because the babies don't have the motor skill to lift up the blanket or reach for things. But um, but yeah, there is definitely an age before you know when when babies are very young that they don't understand. If you've ever played peekaboo with a kid, you know that's the classic example where they cover their face and you are gone. And then when they you know open their eye, there you are, <laughs> your face is back. They're amazed. Um, and so there's, there's this big tie in to, for me personally with object permanence and Tron, you know what I mean? I, I don't, I don't, I won't say I won't like it, but, um, I would like to imagine that when I walk away from my computer that, or, you know, if I shut it down or turn it off, that all those things don't go away, that somehow there's some little things still going on, you know, inside. And that's kind of what Tron is, right? Is that, you know, when you, when you're, um, looking for uh, a program, it might a guy might get in a tank and go try to find your program, but when you're not looking for a program, those guys are just hanging out, you know. In the uh, Tron sequel, which I'll talk about here in a few minutes, um, you know, there's bars, there's people hanging out in Tron bars, you know. If programs aren't being used right now, they're just hanging out, you know. So I, I don't know, I, I just really like that uh, that concept, uh, uh, you know, that general idea. So I mentioned earlier that uh, when Tron came out, originally there weren't any toys. But by the Christmas of that year, there were. Um, there were four. These were all released by Tomy. There were four action figures released uh, for Tron. You have Tron, Flynn, Zark, and then Warrior, who was the uh, warrior guard uh, that appeared in the movie. Uh, it's, it's kind of strange that they got Warrior uh, instead of uh, Yori. I always draw a blank on her name. Um, uh, Laura in, in the real life, you know. Uh, and I, I realize that she's not on as as much of the adventure. She's not in the light cycles and things like that. But she is a major player, you know. She's one of the three people that goes into the the computer. I mean, in the beginning, she's part of the plan. And, and um, you know, we see her in Tronland. So it's funny that... Uh, uh, warriors, which have very few speaking parts and, and no personality, um, make up the fourth action figure, where I think if you were doing that today, uh, you would definitely have a Yori figure. Um, but, uh, you know, so the Tron and Flynn figures are kind of similar. Tron is uh, purple, and then he has this kind of sash across him to make him look different. And then Flynn is blue. Uh, but otherwise, the, the heads, the arms, the legs are all the same. Uh, sculpt, and then of course you have Zark, uh, who who's that red, and then the warrior, uh, who's also kind of a, a red color, and they have different colors. Uh, uh, you know, all the electronics are all all painted on. But you have these these uh, four figures, three of the four, uh, not the warrior, but the other three all came with a little tiny glow in the dark disc and a little peg where you could plug it in and and stick it, uh, you know, on their back. There was also. Tron light cycles. And I had, uh, they released them in originally only in red and yellow. And I had the red one still have it. And it came with a rip cord. So the rear, uh, wheel was like real solid and you would stick the rip cord in there and then pull it real hard and put it down. And then it would race across the floor where it would bash into the wall. <laughs> I'm surprised that mine's not broken or that more of them aren't broken just from hitting the wall so many times, but it flipped open and you could put an action figure in there. Uh, I read online this week, and unfortunately, my Tron figures are uh, in storage. They're in a tub out in the garage. I haven't unpacked everything yet, but I read that they're slightly larger than Star Wars figures. I don't remember that. I thought they were exactly the same size 
as uh, Kenner's uh, three and three quarter inch figures. Maybe they are slightly taller. I don't know. But in my world, uh, they were completely interchangeable. The Tron guys definitely played with the Star Wars guys, and I'm totally sure Darth Vader drove around a light cycle in my room at some point. So, um, yeah, that that um, I mean, in in my head, they were interchangeable enough, right? Now, in 2002, uh, and this would be the 20th anniversary of Tron NECA, uh, re-released all four of those figures on cards. And I have all four of those on the original cards. Uh, and then they also re-released the light cycles, red, yellow, and they added a blue light cycle, which uh, I don't have. I do have the uh, yellow uh, light cycle, which I picked up later in... Uh, uh, gosh, what's the name of that place? 5280s, I think. It's the uh, place in Denver when I went to go visit uh, Rob Sherman. Actually, for Rob Sherman's uh, wedding while I was in Denver, I stopped at uh, this totally awesome 80s toy store and I picked up a uh, a yellow Tron cycle. Um, so, you know, fast forward a little bit. I mean, there's Tron and there's nostalgia about Tron, but, you know, it kind of went away. And I think a lot of people thought the amazing thing about Tron was the groundbreaking graphics. And after a while, they weren't groundbreaking. You know, uh, uh, you know. shortly after Tron, you have the last Starfighter, and there's more CGI uh, spaceships, you know. And, and then you have, I mean, within a few years, you have Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I mean, you just have this, this uh, of course, special effects always uh, continue to get better, right? And so uh, just because something was groundbreaking uh, didn't mean it lasted, you know. And so I think... Tron, uh, you know, except for kids that grew up with uh, sci-fi and and uh, really loving that sort of thing, I think Tron kind of fell out of uh, favor. And then they announced they were making a Tron sequel called Tron Legacy. It was released in 2010, which is 28 years after the original uh, was released. I was really excited uh, when this came out. Uh, there was a lot of uh, tie-in promotions. They had reopened. They had rebuilt Flynn's Arcade, uh, I guess, in uh, – I thought it was at one of the movie studios. I don't know. But, uh, uh, you know, people were going there. I actually have a, a token that a friend of mine got for me uh, at that arcade that says Flynn's on the back. Um, you know, I think – I think the problem with Tron Legacy is that the original – was so groundbreaking because it was such this seamless uh, mesh of CGI and real actors. and, and um, But the shock of that uh, happening in 1982 does not have the same effect in 2010. Uh, we have entire movies that are filmed in front of green screens now. We have an entire tele... You know, the whole Mandalorian is filmed in front of a giant LCD screen that scrolls around when the characters walk around. So, you know, just taking people and putting them in a computer is just not, you know, a groundbreaking thing anymore. Uh, so I think that, that initial shock or that, uh, thrill or whatever, the, uh, bewilderment of that happening just wasn't there, you know? Um, I think in the way that Tron pushed the envelope with CGI, Tron legacy tried to do the same thing with their special effect of de-aging Kevin Flynn. This is a special effect that has not aged well. Uh, I remember seeing it in the theater and thinking that's kind of weird looking. But if you watch it at home today on Blu-ray, 
it looks terrible. It looks weird and creepy. <laughs> uh, they, you know, basically Kevin Flynn, uh, Jeff Bridges, they de-age him uh, for some of the scenes in the movie, and it's weird. I mean, it is. It does not look natural. And, and um, if you're not familiar with uh, Uncanny Valley, you should Google that, which is a whole theory about why people are creeped out about uh, the more that CGI or animatronics become, uh, the closer they get to appearing human, the more repulsive they get to us. And there's a lot of theories as to why that is. But there's something not right with that figure. Now, um, I have a link here. I'm going to open this. Uh, this is a link to my website, robohara.com, and I searched it for Tron in case I had written anything about Tron. And this is a post I wrote on December 30th, 2010, right after seeing Tron Legacy. So it's not very long. I'm going to read this to you. Again, I posted this uh, on my website on December 30th, 2010. On Wednesday, Mason and I went to see Tron Legacy together. I was nine years old when the original Tron was released back in 1982, and Mason is nine years old now. So yeah, full circle and all that. The original Tron impacted me in many ways. Obviously, the computer animation that Tron has become known for was definitely awe-inspiring to a kid that was into computers and video games. But more than that was the world of Tron itself that concept of thousands of programs interacting with one another without human intervention. Today we call that the internet. That concept of living on the grid was fascinating to a kid like me back in 1982. Today, kids watching Tron Legacy can't seem to turn off their cell phones for a two-hour movie. Be careful what you wish for, I suppose. It's hard to imagine what it will take in the future to raise the special effects bar, but as far as virtual action scenes go, Tron's sequel delivers. Just like the original, viewers are quickly thrown into the games, where I quickly found myself hanging on the edge of my seat as I watched a bunch of obviously computer-generated light cycles dancing around one another. And just like during the pod racing scene from The Phantom Menace, while logic tells you that nothing you are looking at on screen is real, your reflexes still occasionally tell you to duck. The plot of Tron Legacy isn't particularly deep. Then again, neither was the original. It wasn't about that, really. It was about imagining the world of computers from the inside out, talking to programs as if they were people, and, even more fanciful, watching how programs interact with one another while human beings, or users, are away. In Tron Legacy, they hang out in digital bars hitting on digital chicks. Both Tron films have plot holes you could drive a light cycle through, but I don't think they were built to stand up to heavy scrutiny. Instead, I'd like to think that they were made to entertain and ultimately inspire. Most nine-year-olds today are familiar with video games, but if movies like Tron Legacy make them wonder for even just a moment about what's going on inside those video games, or inspire just one of them to put down their joystick and thumb through a programming book, then yeah, Tron Legacy is definitely a success. Uh, so that, those were my thoughts about Tron Legacy uh, 10 years ago. I did recently re-watch Tron Legacy uh, maybe three months ago. Every review I can find about Tron Legacy, people say, yeah, it's not a good movie, but man, was that music amazing. And uh, that seems to be the general consensus is that it wasn't necessarily a good movie. Uh, but um, the uh, soundtrack from Daft Punk, who make a cameo appearance in the movie, was pretty amazing. And the way that they tied the music to the movie is uh, pretty amazing. I know that there were plans for a third Tron movie, uh, but I think that got canceled after... Uh, 
the box office return from uh, the second Tron movie. I will say that there is a Tron uh, TV show, and I know so little about it. I know it was one season, and I didn't watch it. Uh, I would like to watch it. I just didn't see it at the time. Uh, and I think Tron Legacy just kind of made me think that, you know, maybe – Maybe I didn't love Tron because it was a great movie. Maybe I loved it because of what it was when I was nine years old. And uh, maybe maybe uh, that's something that you can't just recreate, you know, when you're <laughs> in your mid-40s. Uh, as, as we start to close things out, I made two lists here. One is um, I, I made a list of things that I wish they had made. And um, this is a pretty simple list. One... I wish they had made some Tron play sets. Uh, I would have loved to have a toy arcade where Flynn uh, hangs out and plays Space Paranoids and goes in his little apartment, which is upstairs from the arcade, you know. And I would love to have, um, you know, some of the Tron, you know, maybe the, the, uh, uh, it could have been a vinyl mat of the, uh, the grid where the light cycles race and things like that, you know. So I think they, they kind of missed, uh, Missed out by not releasing some play sets, but definitely, uh, you know, the arcade or some locations like that, I think would have been cool. I wish they had made a recognizer that was large enough for a figure to fit in. Now they did make a Tron recognizer for Tron legacy, which is, I guess, a figure carrying case, but, uh, uh I would have loved to have a recognizer that you could sit, uh, Tron or Flynn up in the top, you know, and, and have it scaled way up super big, you know, like an ad at, uh, for empire strikes back, just a big chunk of plastic. I would have loved to have that. I'm actually, I found some 3d printing models, uh, of recognizers. And I think I'm going to print a, uh, recognizer this week for my desk. Um, and then the last thing I put on that list was the tank. You know, the tank was, uh, uh, what the bad guys drove around, they chased the light cycles in the tank. The tanks were used, uh, uh, you know, to retrieve different things and to go on missions and stuff. And I think, uh, uh, you know, a big smooth tank from Tron would have been a, uh, a cool addition, uh, to add to the toy line. The things I would like to own today that they did make for Tron. Uh, number one, I'd like to get my hands on one of those blue, uh, light cycles from DECA. I've never, uh, been able to track one down. I've seen them online for a hundred dollars. I'm not paying that. Uh, but if I could find one reasonably, you know, for, the problem is what I, what I think is reasonable is, is lower than what they ever go for, you know, but if I found one for 20 or 30 bucks, I would probably pick it up. Um, but, uh, I, I just can't see myself paying more for that than, uh, something that will sit on a shelf. Um, I also, uh, don't believe I have a vintage warrior figure. Um, I kind of think I might've picked one up, but I don't, I can't find it. And so, um, you know, it's not, I didn't have the warrior when I was a kid. I had, uh, Tron, Flynn and Zark and the red light cycle. And again, I picked up the yellow light cycle, but I don't have the vintage, uh, warrior figure. So I would like to pick one of those up again. Uh, I'm sure they're on eBay and they're probably not that much money. So maybe when I get everything unpacked, I'll pick up one of those. Uh, I would like to get one of the Tron Atari 2600 joysticks. So this was a, um, a limited edition uh, joystick that they offered for the Atari 2600. I believe you had to buy um, both Atari 2600 Tron games. And if you did that, it came packaged with this joystick. I've seen it. It's super cool. I believe Shay at the uh, Arcadia Retrocade has one of these. I would love to get my hands on one of those. I think the Tron joystick is one of the coolest joysticks and uh, being able to plug that up to a computer or a, 
uh, home console, I think would be super awesome. And then finally, um, there's a, a series of Tron select figures, and I wouldn't mind getting some of those. Again, you know, it's $20 for an action figure, and, and uh, you know, it's like potato chips. Don't need just one. Need them all. So uh, I'm sure they'll get expensive if I start buying those. But uh, they look, they're really detailed. I think they're six or seven inches tall. They look super cool, and I, I wouldn't mind uh, getting some of those. So, well, man, I think that's just about everything I have on Tron. You know, uh, just to recap, Tron was a big influence on my life as a kid. Man, I watched that movie. We had it on VHS. I, I watched it and rewatched it. I did see it originally in the, the drive in, but. Man, I must have watched that movie so many times. There was a point where I knew every line to that movie. I knew every Easter egg in the movie. I knew when Pac-Man was going to show up. <laughs> I knew all the you know the little uh, nuances of that film. So uh, I was a big fan. Uh, I even had I didn't mention this. I had the little um, storybook. Uh, you know the little forty-five where you read along with the story, and uh, you read the book and it tells you the story of Tron. I had one of those. Uh, and I would listen to that, you know, when I wasn't watching the movie. So lots of uh, great memories about Tron, about building Tron stuff with Legos and playing with those action figures and stuff. It was, uh, I don't know, just had a big uh, impact on me. So uh, I hope uh, you enjoyed this episode. I don't know what the next one will be about, but I'm sure I will find something I can talk about for an hour or so. Uh, thank you guys for uh, tuning in to another episode of You Don't Know Flack. Uh, always, if you have feedback about this or any other episode of the show, uh, feel free to email me directly at Rob O'Hara at RobOHara.com. You can join the conversation over at Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Robcast. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore or leave me a message on the podcast hotline, which is 405-486-YDKF. And with that, I'm going to go sit in front of my computer and see if I could get it to scan me in where I could go join the game. So... If that happens, I won't be here next week. <laughs> Chances are I won't, and I will see you here uh, next week on another episode of You Don't Know Flag. This is the story of Tron. You can read along with me in your book. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the computer sound like this. Let's begin now. It was late at night, but computer programmer Alan Bradley was still hard at work at his computer keyboard. Oh, it's like someone or something is trying to keep me out of the computer system. Come to think of it, it's been that way since Dillinger took over the company. That very night, Alan was called into his boss's office. Mr. Dillinger, my Tron program is vital. It protects the entire system from illegal activity. But that master control program, that MCP, has me shut out. Relax, Alan. The MCP is just checking a security leak. I'm sure Tron will be back on the job soon. After Alan left the MCP's metallic voice boomed through the executive's office. I am so very disappointed in you, Dillinger. We can't have this Tron program spying on me. I'm planning to break into the Air Force computers soon. The Air Force? Just do as I tell you. <laughs>
keep Tron out. End of line, Dillinger. In the laser lab downstairs, Alan's girlfriend, Laura, was conducting an experiment. With the push of a button, a laser beam shot across the room, hitting its target, a common orange. The fruit glowed briefly, then disappeared. <laughs> nice trick, Laura, said Alan as he entered the lab. The pretty young scientist smiled. The laser scans the object, breaks down the molecules, and stores them digitally. I can pull the orange out of the computer whenever I want. I wish you could do the same for my Tron program. Hmm. I may not be able to, Alan, but Flynn could. Once a top-notch programmer for Dillinger's company, Flynn was now the owner of a video game parlor. Alan and Laura found him at a Space Paranoids game, beating the record-high score. Hey, good to see you guys. What brings you two in search of the video game, Wiz? <laughs> Come on, we can talk in my office. Flynn listened to Alan's story. Boy, would I love to get even with Dillinger. He stole five of my best video game programs. He got a big promotion and I got fired. But the proof is all locked up in the computer. Alan grinned. My Tron program could unlock the proof. What are we waiting for? Get me to a computer keyboard. Alan and Laura sneaked Flynn into the laser lab. Flynn hurried to a keyboard. You two stand guard. I'll have Tron up and running in no time. In moments, Flynn had tapped into the MCP. A booming metallic voice flooded the lab. You shouldn't have come back, Flynn. I'm going to have to put you on the game grid. The MCP switched on Laura's laser. It fired a blinding blast. Ah! Like the experimental orange, Flynn's body was broken down into bits and sucked into the computer. Now we'll see how smart you really are, Flynn. Flynn found himself in a strange electronic world where everyone wore glowing armor. A fierce warrior approached him. I am Sark, and you are my prisoner. Flynn was shoved onto a glowing game grid. There stood another prisoner with a very familiar face. Alan? No, I'm Tron, Alan's security program. I'm Flynn. We've got to escape and destroy the MCP. Sark silenced them. You both will now compete in the light cycle contest. The losers will terminate. On gleaming cycles, Tron and Flynn sped across the game grid, building video walls as they went. Flynn, here comes one of Sark's men. Let's cut him off. Ready to turn? Now. Look, he smashed right through the game wall. Follow me through that hole, Tron. We're getting out of here. We did it, Flynn. We've escaped the game grid. Wow. 
Sark shook with rage. Get them. Send out every tank in the game grid if you have to. But get them. Flynn led Tron through a maze of computer world canyons. Don't slow down. Those tanks are right on our tail. Head for that distant city, Flynn. There's a communication tower there. If I can contact Alan, he'll give me the information I need to defeat the MCP. Watch out, Tron! A tank! A blast of energy exploded. Flynn was thrown from his light cycle. Tron stared sadly at his unmoving friend. Farewell, Flynn. Now I must face the MCP alone. And on he sped. Tron found the city almost abandoned. The MCP was draining away all its power. In the nearly deserted streets, he spotted a familiar female program. Yori! I didn't think I'd ever see you again. Oh, Tron, you've returned just in time. We are the only programs left, and as soon as we complete the MCP's new solar sailor, our power will be drained too. The two rebel programs carefully made their way through the streets. Once we reach the communication tower, Tron, you'll only have a few moments to contact Alan. Sark's guards will soon be combing the city for you. That alarm says they're already here. Hurry! Back in the canyon, a dazed Flynn struggled to his feet. I've got to catch up with Tron. But how can I make it across this desert to the city? Hey, what's this? A broken down video game ship. A recognizer. Flynn stepped into the cockpit and grabbed the controls. His energy flowed into the damaged ship and it began to move. All right! Let's get this show on the road! Flynn found the battered ship hard to steer and it bumped roughly into a canyon wall. A glowing ball suddenly shot out of hiding and flew nervously around the cockpit. Who are you? Oh, I know. You're a computer bit, right? Yes. Yes. Pretty good driving, eh? Ah, who asked you? And they continued on to the city. As Flynn flew the shaky recognizer through the town, he noticed a building surrounded by Sark's fierce warriors. That must be the communication tower. Tron made it! Meanwhile, inside the tower, Yori listened as the soldiers beat down the outside door. Hurry, Tron. You must contact your creator, Alan. Tron stepped onto a platform and waited. A brilliant beam of light shone down, and Alan's voice was heard. Tron... I'm giving you a powerful code disk. It will give you access to the MCP. This is our only hope of freeing the computer system. A glowing electronic disk floated down the communication beam and into Tron's eager hands. Yori grabbed Tron's hand. Sark's guards are broken in. Quick, to the solar sailor. The two renegade programs dashed to the hangar of the butterfly-shaped video ship. Get it started, Yuri. I'll hold them off. Tron hurled the powerful disc at the attacking soldiers and scattered them like sticks. 
the disc returned obediently to Tron. A figure raced into the hangar. Wait, Tron. It's me, Flynn. Tron pulled him aboard just as the solar sailor flew off. Sark knew they were headed for the MCP. We must get there first. Sark's massive command carrier raced after them. The solar sailor was swift, but the carrier streaked past him. There, in the distance, stood the gigantic MCP tower, its brilliant beam of communication shooting upward. And guarding his master was Sark, now a monstrous size. The MCP has given me all its power to terminate you, Tron. Tron leaped in front of his enemy. A power disc was hurled. Sark went down in a shower of sparks. Flynn watched from above. Tron has defeated Sark, but the MCP has sealed itself shut. There's only one way to get in. Steer us over that beam, Yori. I'm going to jump. Flynn's body spiraled down the beam deep into the core of the MCP. A blinding blast of energy erupted. The MCP melted into nothingness. In a flash, all captive programs were freed, and the computer world came to life again. Flynn had saved the system. Flynn's body materialized in the laser lab. He shook his head, trying to understand his fantastic experience. Alan rushed into the lab. You did it! You destroyed the MCP! Laura smiled at Flynn's puzzled expression. <laughs> Have a look at the computer screen. There was Flynn's proof that Dillinger had stolen his video games. Flynn... Smile. End of line, Dillinger. <laughs>